Bibles and turn with me uh, and be patient with me as I turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be in John chapter 11 for a while, and I'll explain that in a moment. This month, youth pastor Seth and I have split Sundays. If he takes Sunday morning, I take Sunday night, and vice versa. And that was scheduled for today, uh, but pray for Pastor Seth. He's been battling a fever all week. I don't believe it's COVID. I think it's a flu, but then he shared that with his wife two days ago, so they both have fever, and he cannot make it this evening, so we can't split a Sunday, so you are uh, born to suffer with me. And uh, I want you to be back this evening for a very special reason, and I'll encourage you with this at the end of the sermon today. In John chapter 11, it is a famous story. Probably I'm not going to surprise you with the content of the story. You may be surprised by some of the details that you may have read through in a cursory reading. And I challenge you, I want to give you a challenge for this afternoon, if you're a student of the Bible, go home today with this challenge before you come back tonight to hear the sermon part two. And I want you to go to the parallel Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want you to be able to discuss all the parallel Gospel writings on the passage of John chapter 11. Do you know how many there are? None. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not comment on John chapter 11. Now you think, how odd. I have a parallel Bible, maybe at home, and you have those parallel study concordances, and I have one. And my wife and I use it regularly when we're in the New Testament. I like to see the perspective of another writer writing about the same topic that another writer has written on. So a parallel Bible, if you've never heard of those, I don't think our little resource room carries them, but you can find them on eBay or Amazon.com. Buy a used one. Don't pay $50 for a brand new one. But it... When you open it up, there will be a column for Matthew, a column for Mark, a column for Luke, and a column for John. And when one writer writes on a specific topic, and they go topically, you know, straight through with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, straight through the Bible, so you can see what Mark, Luke, and John have to say about the genealogy of Jesus, for instance, if you're looking at Matthew. But when you get to this page and this chapter of John, John would be the only column filled in. You will not see parallel commentary on the other, from the other three writers of the Gospels. Probably two reasons for this, and I'll give you the reasons before we get into the, uh, the verses themselves. Uh, number one, we're going to study the story of Lazarus, and Jesus is about to, in this chapter, raise him from the dead. Jesus, if there were wanted posters in the first century, Jesus has already done things that upset the Jews upset the Jewish hierarchy, like the high priest, the priests themselves. They have their own police force. They have like a temple police. And then beyond that, they could also go to the Romans, and they could say to the Romans, there's someone who irritates us. He's a Jew, but we don't want to get involved politically because we're Jews, so we want you Gentiles to take care of them. So Jesus, for instance, by this point, had healed a blind man. And remember, the blind man came back, and they said, well, who healed you, you know, and what was his name, and what did he look like? Well, he was a blind man, right? And so the, the blind man said, look, I don't know anything about this guy's background. 
All I know is that once I was blind, and now I can see, okay? And it says from that time that Jesus performed that miracle, the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus. So if there was a wanted poster at such a time 2,000 years ago, you would have seen Jesus' face on the wanted poster. He's wanted, and we want to put him to death, was the very obvious, very flagrant reason that they wanted this man. So you'll see this and the, the drama of this unfold in today's lesson. So perhaps one of the reasons that the other parallel gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, did not write on it was because in the next chapter, don't go there yet, okay, but in chapter 12 of John, it talks about Lazarus' life after the tomb, that he's resurrected. And lo and behold, the Pharisees say, we want to kill Jesus for sure. But now he's done this miracle of raising this man to the, from the dead, and we'll just kill that guy too. What's his name? Oh, Lazarus. And so very probably Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have lived at, while Lazarus was living again, okay, after his resurrection. And if Matthew, Mark, and Luke had all written and the letters had gotten around in the first century, this is after Jesus has resurrected, but if they said, oh, this Lazarus who lives in this very small town, only two miles away from Jerusalem, he lives over here in Bethany, they would have gone after Lazarus to put him to death too. Why? Just because of Jesus. Okay, so understand that that could be one reason why there are no parallels to this gospel. And another reason could have been, uh, it carries less weight with me, but it's a possibility, that Peter is not involved in the events of today's chapter. Peter was not with Jesus, implying at the resurrection of Lazarus. If he had been, it names some other disciples who kind of stepped to the forefront and made comments and made decisions. And if Peter had been there, he would have elbowed those guys out of the way, you know, impetuous Peter. He would have said, oh, look, Lord, I'll do this and this and this for you. No mention of Peter. So Peter, remember, he had a wife. He had a mother-in-law. He had responsibilities up in Galilee. He was a fisherman. And even during the time of Christ's ministry, all of the disciples didn't follow Jesus all of the time. So I think Peter was off the scene, maybe up in Galilee, ministering to his own family and their needs, while the discourse today happens here in Bethany. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all commentators. Remember Matthew, the tax collector, Mark, young John Mark, and Luke, the doctor. When they wrote their Gospels, they very probably went to the first person eyewitness and said, what happened? Well, who better than Peter to say, when Jesus let me walk on the water, it was like this. So all of the Gospels talk about that event, for instance, because Peter was the eyewitness, firsthand person to tell the other writers of the Gospels, but not so here. So because Peter wasn't commentating on the event of Lazarus' resurrection, possibly that's why the other uh, Gospels are silent on it. However, it is the most incredible miracle that Jesus did. Okay, he did several miracles. They're documented in the New Testament in the Gospels themselves. But this is the premier miracle before he dies and is resurrected. Now, you can say that's a miracle in and of itself, but that was the plan of Jesus all along. He had never intended just to do that as a miracle. That was to be exposed for the whole world. So if you're with me in John chapter 11, let's look at the very first verse and this passage, this uh, triplet of first three verses. Now a certain man was sick. What was his name? Lazarus. Where was he at? The town of Bethany, the town that Mary and his sister Martha lived in. 
I'm reading from the King James, but I'm filling in here for you some gaps, okay? Verse 2. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So now we know Mary and Martha, the two sisters. We've read about them before. And when Jesus went to their house, they were good personal friends of, of Jesus. And when he went to their house, there was a multitude of people following Jesus that day. He went in probably just for some respite, just to sit down and relax. But as many as could crowd into that house crowded in. Remember the story where Martha is panicked. I have 500 house guests. It's a small village. There may have only been 500 people living in Bethany in the first century. So all of these people wanted to be close to Jesus. So they wanted to squeeze into the house. So here's Martha thinking like a lot of you lady servants think that when guests come to your house, I've got to give them cold water to drink. I've got to get them food. I've got to fill in the blank. So Martha was working away. And her sister Mary, that lazy sister, she was at the feet of Jesus, a most spectacular place to be, by the way. And she anointed Jesus' feet with oil. It's not the first time. It's, it, that was the first time, but it's not the last time that she does it. She anoints Jesus with an oil that would prepare him for his death. And with her tears, she cried on his feet. And with her hair, she wiped his feet. That's how close Jesus was to this family. They were closer than brother and sister. He was closer probably to them than he was to the disciples, even though he taught the disciples more. So this close relationship then draws into this passage when it said, oh, there was a certain man and he was sick. Mm, okay, a lot of sick people came to Jesus, and he healed them. But this is a very, very special person to Jesus. And we'll see that the commentary of John says even that this is the man that Jesus loved. So a request is brought to Jesus first. The man was sick, and the request here in the first three verses is simply that Jesus could maybe come and heal this person. It says, he whom thou lovest is sick, in verse 3. It's poignant, by the way, that John, the beloved John, the beloved apostle as we know John, he was, he was a humble guy. And so he wouldn't sometimes write about Jesus and him in their discourse and say, yeah, Jesus and I, um, by the way, I'm John. John was so humble, he would say, Jesus and that disciple whom Jesus loved. We all know who that is. And I hope that you have that loving relationship. That when you tell friends about Jesus, that you tell them, Jesus, who is my Savior, who, by the way, he loves me. I hope you're able to share that intimate relationship with your personal Savior. That was the relationship with John, the writer of this gospel. But it was the relationship with the man who dies, who gets sick and dies, Lazarus. So understand there that passage. When... Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. At that time, Jesus, uh, Lazarus, their brother, was simply sick. And they thought, if Jesus comes to town, he's healed the sick before. It's no big deal for Lazarus. And certainly, Jesus loves our brother, and so he can come here to heal him too. That was all I think they expected. It was to do a miracle, yes, to heal their sick brother. But that was all the depth that, that they expected. And so... 
Mary and Martha didn't specifically ask Jesus even to come. It was just an informative message that our brother is sick. Spurgeon, uh, the great man of God of two centuries ago, he made this quote about this passage. He said, the love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of life. Men of God are still men. What's that mean? Spurgeon had the insight to see that just like Lazarus was sick, even though Jesus was his best friend, we get sick. And Jesus is our faithful friend. But Jesus allows sometimes things, even like sickness, COVID, accidents like car wrecks, illness to come into our life so that we can call on him. All right, so there's a reason for this. And by the way, if you have never been sick, if you've never had a car accident, when it happens, don't blame Jesus. Just know that that's something that Jesus is using to draw you closer to him. Sometimes, to our shame, we might go for a day without calling out Jesus, without calling his name out in prayer. Jesus wants to hear your voice. It's an amazing thing to me that the God of the universe stops what he's doing. And he inclines, the psalmist said, he inclines his ear to our prayer. God stops in the maintenance of the universe to hear your prayer. That's how personal this is. And that's how personal Mary and Martha believed that Jesus would be in their life. So verse 4, when Jesus heard that, heard that Lazarus was sick, here's what he told his disciples. Perhaps he told this to the messenger, but for sure his disciples Verse 4 says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. So it talks about that love. Verse 6 says, and when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Where was he? He was about, geographically, about 15 miles from the town where Lazarus died, about 15 miles away. If you walk at a very steady pace for about two days, you might be able to cover 15 miles if you're in really good shape and it's not Phoenix, Arizona in the heat, all right? But he's at least two days away when he hears the news that Lazarus is sick. So he tells the disciples, this sickness is not unto death. That probably gives them some hope. But notice his response. Guys, you have to pack up right away because my good friend Lazarus that I love, he's very, very sick and I've got to go there right now. Because Jesus got a petition, he did not stop what he was doing and immediately respond to the petitioner. Jesus stayed where he was because there were probably sick people in that village 15 miles from Bethany and he was healing them. He was still glorifying God in his ministry. He didn't stop and immediately rush to the bedside of a sick Lazarus. Even though we know, because of the succeeding verses, that by the time Jesus heard this, Lazarus had already died. So understand that, that when he said the sickness is not unto death, he knew that the end result of whatever he did would glorify God. It wasn't to glorify death. He didn't go into a town to see a dead Lazarus and proclaim how great the victory of death is in our lives. This week, this message that I had already studied became very personal 
when two of my friends died, I had one of their funerals this week, and another one will be forthcoming. But we don't glorify in death. When I stood at the casket at Best Funeral Home this week of my dear friend, uh, Jerry Manier, he had been our bus director and uh, known Jerry for almost 30 years. He was here at Maranatha 30 years ago before I arrived. And a lot of our families, the Almaderas family and others, uh, Brenda Jelenic, uh, some of those had been children when Jerry picked them up on his Sunday school bus. And so our connection goes way back. But as I preached his funeral, I didn't glorify in death. I didn't glorify Jerry just because of the great guy that he had been. And now it all ends because we took him to the National Cemetery and buried him along with all the dead veterans. And that's the end of his life. Oh, how sad that would be. Jerry left a testimony that he loved Jesus Christ. He had a personal savior. That savior not only saved him from sin, it saved him from death. He overcame death and hell and the grave and is, as Paul said, to be absent from this body, this body is to be present with the Lord. So we celebrated the fact that Jerry has died because he is in the presence of his God. We know that because of the testimony that Jerry left, okay? We, hopefully you, have that same testimony that you are a saved believer in Christ. So Jesus explains to the disciples that this sickness isn't unto death. It's unto eternal life. Jesus knows that because he can see the future. He sees Lazarus already with him in heaven. The disciples did not have that perspective. Understand that Spurgeon also said this in the commentary on this passage. He said, the Lord speaks of things not as they seem to be, that's our perspective, not even as they are at the present moment, but as they shall be in the long run. Understand that when you read the words of Christ and he speaks prophetically, he already sees us in future heaven with him for eternity. When Christ spoke here on earth, yes, he was in the flesh, but he spoke with the foresight of God the Father who sees us in eternity. So in John's gospel, there were three times when someone came to Jesus, pardon me, and asked Jesus to do something. If you have your notes, if you're a note taker, jot down in the margin of your Bible. John chapter 2, verse 1, starts one passage. John chapter 7, verse 1, starts another passage. And John chapter 11 is the third passage. All three of these, you see personal friends of Jesus coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, stop everything. This is a big crisis in my life, and I need your help right now. And Jesus said, noted. I'll get to you. And he did not stop what he was doing, although in all three circumstances, he fulfilled the request of the asker. He did what they were asking, just not in their time. It was in his time, which is always in his father's time. When his father could be glorified, he did what was good for his friends, for the people that asked. So understand that. He didn't request, or he didn't fulfill the request of the messenger for Mary and Martha right then, but he did in good time. Verse 7. And then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. I think he said that probably in an upway, upbeat way. I wish that we had audio Bibles. I have an audio Bible. I have Bluetooth hearing aids. I can hear the Bible read to me, but it's not read in first person. It's not the commentary of Jesus speaking to my ears. 
but I assume, you could assume some things when you get to that red letter portion that Jesus is saying this with some enthusiasm. All right, guys, get ready. We're going to Judea. Now, the guys had been following Jesus for three years. They had been with, us, with him when the Pharisees had already tried to pick up stones and, and stone Jesus to death. And Jesus had escaped that and gone through the throng of people and gone out. They had been with him and they knew that the death sentence was on Jesus' head. That if you go back into Judea, that's like the county, and then you go into the city of Jerusalem, that's where the Pharisees live. Those guys want to kill you and by, by default, they'll probably want to kill us too. They knew that. Here's where Peter, if, if Peter had been there, he would have been speaking these words. Look at verse 8. His disciples, other than Peter, say, Master, the Jews of late have stopped, sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And Jesus said, Are there not yet twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. This is a parable. Jesus is trying to get a point across to his disciples, who by three years now of close proximity, they should have known Jesus and been able to interpret some of his parables. But he's saying, let's go. And let's go in the daytime. And when we go in the daytime, if there's a multitude of people around me, the Pharisees will be too afraid for fear of the crowd to do anything to me. He knew, already he knew, that the Pharisees would get their way. They would take him, they would put him to death. But remember when that happened, a couple chapters forward in your Bible, it happened at night. They took him at night from the Garden of Gethsemane. They came in secret when he had only a, a small group around him to protect him, and they came and they took Jesus away. So Jesus is speaking again prophetically of a time that he would be taken at night. So um, understand that and then go on to verse 11. These things saith he, after that he had saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. The disciples misunderstood that as well. Okay. Verse 12, and then said the disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. He's doing good, Lord. He must not be too sick. He's just sleeping. And so Jesus understood that they misunderstood. So howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that they, he had spoken of just taking a rest and sleep. Verse 14, and then saith Jesus unto them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. That's pretty plain. They now understand. And look at the very next verse, words of verse 15. And I am glad. Whew. Those are two phrases you would not expect to be in conjunction with one another. My best friend who I love and who loved me, he's dead. And I am glad. <laughs> How's that work? In a world apart from Christ, when your best friend dies, maybe a coworker that you know, has no testimony. There is weeping, there's sadness, there's mourning of the loss that you will never see that person again, ever. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ that we will see anyone on earth that we've, we are living our lives for. But look at what Jesus is saying. Lazarus is dead, but because of who I am, I have joy that I can take care of that situation. 
if he can take care of your situation, Jerry Maneer's situation of last week, the Lazarus situation of 2,000 years ago, certainly we can, we can know that when we die, there will be joy in heaven. Something that we've done has made Jesus glad. Ponder that for a second. Underline that, go back and study it, because it's pretty deep. But he says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go up unto him. He's glad that the disciples also, he knows what he's going to do, but the disciples also would get to see a great miracle. And that miracle, the one of the final ones that Jesus did on earth, would strengthen their faith in him, that he is God, and they are following a Savior Messiah. So he tells them plainly of his death. He says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. And Jesus could be glad even in the death of a dear friend. Now, verse 16 is a standalone verse. I'm going to cover it just as a standalone verse because there's some explanation here. Number one, this isn't the words of Peter. That's what makes me believe Peter's not there. And if Peter had been there, he would have pulled out his little sword that he cut Malchus's ear off with. And he said, come on, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem. If you're going to die, we're all going to die. That would be Peter, right? Well, this is Thomas, and he's the leader of the group and spokesman of the group at this time. And verse 16 says, And then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. We're all going to die. You know, it wasn't an inspiring message, you know. Let's stay with Jesus and see what glory he gives to God the Father. No, let's go with Jesus. If he dies, we'll die with him. We'll all go down. That's Thomas, okay? The same Thomas that we know later as Dappling Thomas, okay, that didn't get to be there in the upper room the first time Jesus appeared. That same Thomas said this. Now, an interesting thing about Thomas's name and why I just want to focus on this one verse for a second is that the word Thomas interpreted in the Greek means that he was a twin. He has two names, a Greek name and a Hebrew name, Thomas Didymus. And it's the Greek word, Didymus, I think of ditto, the same as, okay, as Thomas, the twin. Here's an odd thing. You can scour the four Gospels and look at the relationship of James and John. They were brothers. We know that. But Thomas, we don't read about him having a twin. So here's what authors greater than me have commented on this passage, is that they think that Thomas was a doppelganger. He looked like Jesus. Now, you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I look like Jesus. That would be a cool thing, right? You're about to go into a town where Jesus' face is on a wanted poster for death, and you look like Jesus. Thomas says, guys, come on. We'll go with him, but we're all going to die. And probably me first. I'll take the first arrow because I look like Jesus. That could be what was going through his mind. It's not a coincidence that his name was Thomas Didymus, that he looked like somebody's twin, all right? So he speaks up here and he says, all right, let's go into town and understand that close connection there and why he might say this at this time. So look at verse 17 now. And when Jesus came, now they're walking from the town 15 miles away toward the city of Bethany. And when he came, he found that he had that he had lain in the grave for four days already. 
So when the messenger came and told Jesus about two days' journey, and Jesus traveled for about two days to, to be at Bethany, Lazarus has now been dead for four days. Verse 18, now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs, furlongs off, uh, and in fact, that's about two miles. I've been there. A few years ago, I had the privilege to go to Israel, and if you walk out the eastern gate, you cannot because it's blocked up by the Muslims in about the 700s. But the eastern gate faces east. You're looking right at the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus will return someday physically and split that mountain in half. But on the other side of the Mount of Olives, just on the other side, is the little town of Bethany, just a quiet, sleepy little town. There's not really even a town there now. It's a suburb of greater uh, Jerusalem, and there's a Bible college there uh, for the Jews. So understand the geography has not changed all that much. Jesus is over the hill from the city of Jerusalem, can't see it from Bethany, but he's coming up to the little village of Bethany in verse nine, uh, 19. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort her concerning their brother. So small town, it was a village. Everyone in the, fam in the town knew Lazarus. He was probably a good guy, not just to Jesus, but to everyone in the town. Mary had fed that town. Martha had served in that town. Verse 20, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Now understand, both ladies are going through grieving. They're going through the grief process. Their brother has been dead for four, years, four days. And so Mary stays in the house with the mourners. And probably every woman in the village would have been there with Mary. And they're silently weeping, they're sobbing, they're, they're in anguish and grief because of the death of their beloved friend Lazarus. Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she goes outside of town, probably to the east, as he's coming in, and she meets Jesus. Uh, verse 22, uh, verse 21, I'm sorry. And then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou will ask of God, God will give thee. I do not believe personally, as Jesus came up there to do what he was going to do with Lazarus, and he knew that very well, that Martha, when she went outside to meet Jesus, I don't think she had a clue. Her hope was not in the resurrection. Her hope was in a healing Savior. And so when he met, she met Jesus, she had called for Jesus to come. But that's when Lazarus was alive. When the messenger left town, Lazarus was living. She had seen Jesus do miracles, okay, but not a miracle of raising the dead. And so she thought, if Jesus can be here in my village, come into my house, put his hands on my sick brother, then he'll be well again. That was the extent of it. So she had faith in Jesus, but she had faith only that he could heal, not what he's about to do. He had already been in the tomb for four days, and there was an odd thing. I thought to myself, why? Why four days? You know, I'm like that trivia guy that's like, okay, that's probably not a coincidence. Let's dig into this a little bit, find out why Lazarus has been four days before Jesus goes to the tomb. There was a Jewish superstition in the first century that if a person had been dead up to three days, their spirit literally doo -doo -doo -doo, would be hovering around the tomb or the burial place for three days and waiting to see if it could go back into the body and reanimate. Now, what we would call that in medical, modern medicine, is maybe the person was only in a coma, and maybe after three days they could come out of the coma. 
maybe they could come back to life. And if that had happened, and Jesus had been there and done this same miracle that he was about to do, the superstitious non-believers would have said, poo-poo, you know, he would have come back to life anyhow. Jesus didn't do anything special. He was just, the spirit was hovering around, and, and as soon as he got, you know, the breath of that stinky tomb, then that animated him back to life, you know? Not so. So Jesus waited four days. Four days in the desert there, just like the desert here, a dead body would have started to blacken. That corpse would have started to rot. Worms would have come out. I don't need to be more graphic than that, but you understand the situation that Mary and Martha thought was going on behind that gravestone in that tomb, okay? There was no hope for that dead man. And Jesus is the God of the people in our lives that have no hope. He's the person that came to me. When I was a hopeless sinner, a sinner who could do nothing for my own sin, a sinner that if I had died in my sin, I would have gone to hell. That same Jesus came to me, dead, putrid, rotting, and said, for the cost of nothing, I'll give you eternal life. Now, it didn't cost me anything, true, but it cost Jesus his life on the cross. He did that for you. Understand that. Appreciate that. Even though he was Lazarus' friend, he brought him back to life. So Mary and Martha are thinking one thing. Jesus could have healed him if he had been here, but no, he didn't come in time, so now it's too late for everything. We'll just go on with our life with a dead brother. Then verse 23, Mary saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. A definitive, direct statement of fact. And Martha, thinking she knows theology, she's heard Jesus preach maybe for the whole three years. She knows the Bible of what the words of God are. I know, she says in verse 24, that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 Mary, Martha, here's something I want to explain to you. The resurrection at the last day, that's me. I'm here right now. And look at what he says, verse 25. I am the resurrection. If COVID goes crazy again, and the governor locks us all into our homes, and we can't go to work, and we can't come to church, and you're sitting there with just your Bible at home thinking, what shall I do? What shall I read? Here's a challenge to you. Get you a good Bible concordance, maybe a Bible dictionary, and the Word of God, and study the I am's in the Bible. Start in the Old Testament and see where God is, I am. There's great power in that phrase, in that spoken notice of his name. He is the great I am, and the great I am still is. So when he told this to Martha, he's identifying to her, I am the creator of the universe. I am the one who gave Adam life. I am the sustainer of life. I am, and I am right here with you today. So look at the verse, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, like your brother, yet shall he live, hint, hint. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She believed in Jesus, that Jesus was a healing God. She had seen the Messiah do miracles of healing. But believe 
that even though you're dead, you can be alive again? And here's her parting thought. She didn't think it through. She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. In other words, the Messiah, the promised one. You're in the world now. You're that Christ. You're the Son of God. I believe that. Hold on just a second. Let me go get my sister. And she goes off the scene. She didn't think it through what Jesus actually said. Martha, Martha, Martha. I am the resurrection. Your brother who's dead, I can bring him to life right away. That was in the implication of what he said, but she didn't catch it. She's going to wait and see the miracle later. So when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and that your brother shall rise again, that wasn't a rhetorical statement. It's something that she didn't consider long enough before she ran back to the house. When he said, I am the resurrection, he didn't say, I claim to have resurrection life. I possess that, and I can share it with other people. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I understand special secrets about resurrection and life. That's what the Sanhedrin or the, maybe the, San, uh, the Sadducees would have said. We have knowledge of the word of God. We possess this knowledge. We have a book of how to do it. We have scrolls of resurrection and life. We have the Old Testament characters like Elisha who had called someone back to life. By the way, never in the Bible had it happened after four days. And Jesus said, not just claiming to have those things, he said he is those things. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. So for us to know Jesus is to know life and to know that resurrecting power. And apart from him, by the way, if you do not know Jesus, you do not claim the resurrection in your life. There's no hope for your eternal future to live with Christ in a resurrected state. Verse 28, and when she had said so, Martha, she says, yep, yep, Lord, I know, I believe, I believe that you're the son of God. Wait a second, I've got to go get Mary. So verse 28, she says, and she went her way, and she called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the master is come, and he calleth for thee. So she went back into their house in Bethany, and there was a crowd full of people. There were wailers and weepers there. There were mourner people. There were, if you were rich, you could hire people, total strangers, to come in just to cry for your dead loved one, okay? I don't think that was the case in Bethany. It doesn't imply that at all. These were sincere people who loved Lazarus, and they came to weep at his death with the sisters. But there's a house full of people. So Martha didn't just open up the house and say, uh, Mary, Jesus is here. He's right outside the, the town. Uh, he wants to go see you. Everyone would have rushed out, stopped their mourning, and rushed out to see Jesus. They all knew Jesus. He was popular in that village, all right? So she went secretly, I believe, to tell Mary, hey, if you want some peace and quiet, some quiet time with Jesus, he's right outside town. And so there goes Mary. Look at verse 29. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews which followed were with her in the house, or which were with her in the house, and comforted her. When they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, they followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep, to weep there, and so let us go there with her. They were the mourners, okay? They were going to support these two sisters. But Mary goes out first to find Jesus. Verse 32. And when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Pardon me. 
In verse 32, you see Mary's regret. If you had been here, my brother had not died. When you look at a verse like that, here's where I wish I had an audio Bible of an audio track of Jesus talking to Mary and exactly what Mary said. I wish I could have seen her face because there's two ways to interpret this verse of what she said to Jesus. It sounds kind of sad, but it could have also been harsh. He, when, when Mary comes to him, it could have been something like, Jesus, I know that you have incredible healing power and you love my brother. And if you had been here to heal him, my brother wouldn't have died. It could have been that way. Or it could have been accusatory, where she says, Jesus, we called you. You didn't come. And now my brother's dead, implying, and it's all your fault. Okay? It could have been that way. And so Jesus sees her. Obviously, she's in grief. But understand, I understand, as a Christian counselor and a chaplain for the police, I understand that when I come upon a death scene and I'm talking to the relatives, often I have to tell the relatives that their beloved family member has died. I understand that there are stages of grief, and you go into it immediately. I normally have a, a photo ID of a person who's died. I present that to the family and say, is this your son? Yes. I'm sorry to inform you that he is dead. I don't say he was in an accident, things aren't going well for him. I don't imply that there's hope. I have to abruptly let them know he's dead. Because if I said he's in the hospital or he's in the morgue, even the morgue, they still think, well, maybe he's hanging on. You know, maybe there's hope. And I don't want to cause them to linger in that hope because they need to initiate those stages of grief. The first of which is anger. People will get mad at me because their son or daughter died in a car accident, died of an overdose or whatever. I understand that. It's okay for them to be mad at me. I dealt with that this week when a mother lost her daughter in our church. She's a church member. And she lost her daughter. And there was some anger there because how could they die is maybe your first thought. How could they leave me? How could they do this to me, to the living? And that stage of anger is what Mary and Martha were both going through also. Their brother had only been dead four, year, four days, and she, she was probably angry. And she picked Jesus maybe to focus on with her anger. That could be implied in this passage. So we understand that. And Jesus very well knew why he was there. Uh, and so verse 32 happened, and we see Mary's regret. Her brother would maybe not have died if Jesus could have healed her. That probably was the if healed him, that probably was the tone of, of voice there. And on the other hand, it could have also been seen as criticism to Jesus just for him being late. If you had ran all the way, you might have gotten here when he died. But again, we know, reading the rest of the story, that by the time the messenger got to Jesus, Lazarus had already died. So verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, now the crowd has caught up from the house. Here comes the crowd that was there in the house with, with Mary. And the, Jesus sees them also weeping. And two times in this short passage, it says he groaned. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And here's where he says his one quote in this passage is, where have you laid him? Let's just get right to it. We'll go to the cemetery, see where you have buried him. And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. He's traveling now with this crowd of mourners. And verse 35 is very short. Maybe the first Bible verse that you young people have ever memorized. 
Jesus wept. If your grandparents give you a dollar a verse for memorizing the Bible, start with that one. It's a good one. Not just because it's only two words and easy to memorize, but there's a great story behind it. Jesus wept because the people that he loved were weeping. Jesus, the God of the universe, is full of compassion. When you hurt in your heart, it hurts Jesus. When he saw these people saddened with no hope, he wept at that because their tears touched him and he produced tears as well. Now he wasn't wailing and mourning like the wailers did. He simply wept. He showed the sadness that all the other people had. He showed that sadness in his heart. But it continues. They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, behold, how he loved him. Look how much he loved Lazarus, that he's crying too. And some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused even this man that should not have died? In other words, if Jesus had been there, again, the story is he could have healed him before he died. And Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave, and it was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Let's talk about that groaning just for a second. It's a peculiar passage in this, this book of John. It's maybe the only time that the passage is used, that, that interpretation of what he did is used in the entire New Testament. When I was a boy, I was my dad's favorite of five kids. I know that because I just thought he'd tell me that all the time, but he never did. Um, but what I saw him do in his actions is he didn't buy ponies and horses for my brothers and sisters. He bought them for me. And so I was raised with a barn on our property where we had horses that I could go out, throw a blanket on or not, just jump on bareback, and I'd ride these horses. Horses do a peculiar thing. If they don't like what you're doing, if they think the hay is moldy, if they think you don't have a sugar cube in your hand, they snort. And I would never get on a snorting horse. If I had put the saddle on and a horse snorted at me, that's how they show their anger. That's how they show their, uh, things aren't going as I like it. All right? So I would not just jump on that horse and think, the horse is okay. He's good to go. He's going to be happy with me. He would throw me right off. Right? Some of you horsey people know that. The phrase that Jesus groaned when he saw these people thinking, there's no hope. No one can do anything. It's too late. The guy's dead. That phrase Jesus groaned in himself is the same phrase that the, the Hebrews would use for a Greek snorting. Okay? Jesus internally maybe was angry with the way the people acted because here's God in the flesh. God who could do everything. God that provided miracle after miracle after miracle in these people's lives. And they saw it and they're saying, Jesus is here, but it's too late even for Jesus. He can't do anything. Jesus snorted. Okay, he's like, oh, and not again, not again. Has their faith been up here one day and oh, down again? They don't believe in me. Even though he was sad that they were sad, he wept, but he was also kind of disappointed in how they were acting. So when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the tears of Mary and Martha, and then he was moved because of compassion. He's God, a God that loves us. He sees our tears. 
He's touched by our tears. He remembers our tears. And there's even a verse at the end of the book of Revelation that says that he'll wipe the tears away from our eyes. All right? So that's the context. That's the status of Jesus walking up to a cave with a stone rolled up against it. And what's he going to do next? You have to come back at 6 o'clock tonight to see. Because what if he doesn't call Lazarus forth? You won't know unless you come out tonight, all right? Don't peek ahead. That's interfering in my sermon. I love you guys, and I appreciate you. And God, God, through a most unfortunate set of circumstances, allows me to be a preacher and a minister to you. Please pray for me. Please pray. That number one, I can always do justice to the word of God because it's the word of God that doesn't return void. It's not my opinion. It's not my funny anecdotal stories that will amuse you and cause you to come back or draw close to Christ. It's the love and passion for the word of God. I pray that would be preeminent in your lives every day. Let's pray.